Julia Guy. I'm Dan Hackborn. And I'm Belinda Ongaro. And you are listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. We're a group of Masters in Library and Information Studies students here at the University of Alberta. And every month, we bring you fresh library and information studies-centric news. That's right. For those of you who have never tuned in to Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies and do serious investigative journalism. And today, we're taking stock of the world of libraries here and now in 2020, and we will be looking into the future. The future. Future. Beep, boop, beep, boop, 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 boop. I am librarian bot 5000, boop, boop. I am programmed for information distribution. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And Belinda, you are going to start us off, right? That is correct. You've likely seen a librarian depicted in popular culture, perhaps in a movie, TV show, novel, or even a comic book. Barbara Gordon, I'm looking at you. Based on these depictions, the words library or librarian may bring some strong stereotypes and tropes to mind, even if you know better from personal experience. I chatted with some friends and family members and gathered a handful of myths that they held about the library world. So let's do some myth busting. Librarians say shush a lot. Although some librarians may be required to intervene if a patron is being particularly obnoxious, noise in libraries is extremely common and acceptable. It's true some libraries have quiet sections or floors where if you so much as turn a page too loudly, you might receive a few aggressive glares from your fellow space users. But for the most part, libraries also facilitate collaborative work. They welcome children, and they certainly permit a bit of casual chatting. Libraries are becoming more and more of a community social hub, so we really need to ditch the shushing stereotype. This is actually an interesting topic for librarians who are interested in library spaces and how they're designed and regulated. Librarians take lots of English courses. Although this is true for some librarians and librarians-to-be, myself included, Librarians come from all kinds of backgrounds and work with various subject matter. Education, psychology, sciences, health, film studies, drama, theology, law, you name it. Librarians and information professionals require diverse skill sets and can come from a number of different fields, not just literature. Librarians are bookworms, nerds, or basement dwellers. Ah, the musty side of the librarian stereotype never to be confused with the lusty hot librarian. Many librarians do like to read, but they have other hobbies and interests as well that range from gaming to podcasting to music to martial arts. Yeah! And many of these activities can be social in nature. Plus, libraries offer a lot more than books these days. Maker spaces, 3D printers, recording studios, puppets, board games, toys, athletic equipment, etc. Not to mention the numerous educational programs and workshops that are typically offered. In conclusion, librarians are more than introverted bookworms, and libraries offer more than stacks of dusty books. Librarians work in libraries. Yep, they sure do, but they also can work in archives, museums, or art galleries. And there's more than one type of library public libraries, school libraries, academic libraries, even digital libraries. And then there's special libraries, which encompass things like 
medical, law, theater, music, and theological libraries. And sometimes librarians don't work in any type of library. The skills librarians possess are applicable in various fields, disciplines, and businesses that demand some degree of information organization or working with data, online or otherwise. Ah. As the ALA website states, wherever there's a need for information, there's a need for a librarian. Librarian shelve books. Well, actually, this is usually reserved for student pages. And librarian work is not just about cataloging and organizing either. It's about recognizing where controlled vocabularies fail to be respectful or considerate of minorities and marginalized peoples. It's about dissecting intricate questions from patrons, navigating the myth of library neutrality, and providing service, all while acting within ethical boundaries and upholding core values. It's about fighting for intellectual freedom and resisting censorship. It's about engaging in battle for more budget, books, or space, and experiencing the emotional toll that comes with that. The skills and responsibilities of librarians are diverse and may include reference and instruction, web design, webinars, digital literacy, research, marketing or advocacy, or even teaching master students to become the librarians of tomorrow. On a related note, we have the classic myth of, that's not a real job. All of us who are studying to become a librarian or are currently working as a librarian have heard this at some point, usually from a friend or family member who has come to believe the Hollywood stereotypes or who thinks a library can be run by unqualified volunteers. Establishing our roles as professionals is an ongoing challenge in the field of librarianship that highlights the importance of things like academic accreditation and hiring standards. It's also worth noting that not everyone who works in a library is a librarian. There are also student pages, library assistants, and sometimes even social workers roaming the library. Librarians are grumpy and want to be left alone. Okay, sometimes true, but please do not believe this absurd myth. Librarians want to help you. They wouldn't be in their chosen profession if they didn't. So brighten your librarian's day and ask them something other than the location of the restroom. Librarians wear cat eye glasses. Cat eye glasses first emerged in the 1930s based on the aesthetic of Venetian masks. And the look became very trendy in the 1950s and 60s. Over the years, the shape and size has diversified, but the upturned sides have stuck around. Although they're frequently associated with librarians, they also have a strong tie to the beehive hairstyle and secretaries, not to mention the likes of Marilyn Monroe, Grace Kelly, Elizabeth Taylor, and Audrey Hepburn. Winged glasses marked the evolution of glasses from practical vision correction to a fashion statement. As far as stereotypes go, I'm not mad about it. But with that said, I think it goes without saying that some librarians don't wear glasses or wear glasses of a different shape and style. Credit to iHeart Eyewear and Zenny Optical's blogs for supplying some of the historical details. Librarians need to know a bunch of information about different topics. Yes and no. Before the internet was a thing, librarians definitely received far more reference questions. But even then, they could refer to books and various reference guides. That said, it certainly doesn't hurt to have a bit of familiarity with myriad topics. Today, librarians' professional skill sets need to span a great deal of technological know-how in addition to understanding the underlying theories and principles of librarianship. Some librarians are specialists. Some are generalists. Some focus on the back end, flexing their expertise in cataloging principles or metadata creation. 
It's really a healthy, mutualistic relationship with technology that librarians sustain. They don't need to know everything about everything, just how to find out everything about everything. Speaking of knowing everything, maybe none of this was new to you as a regular listener of our program. You're brilliant. We love you. Don't ever change. But maybe you have a friend or family member who could benefit from a little demystifying. Be sure to share this episode with them. It's 2020, after all. Time for everyone to put on their cat-eye glasses and see librarians and libraries with clarity. Thanks, Belinda. Yeah, librarians, am I right? Totally. Great summary of what librarians don't do. Let's move on to something that librarians are all about. Access. It's sort of our thing. So on the topic of being able to access and use materials, we are now going to talk a bit about the public domain here on the show. Timothy Arthur is going to fill us in on works that entered the Canadian public domain this year and reflects on the present state of and imminent challenges to the Canadian public domain. The Magic Pudding is a seminal work in Australian children's literature and author and illustrator Norman Lindsay's masterpiece. Its protagonist is a koala by the name of Bunyip Bluegum, who leaves the family treehouse and sets out on a new life as a traveler in a world peopled by both, well, people, and a cast of anthropomorphic Australian wildlife and foodstuffs. These include the eponymous Magic Pudding, which regenerates fully whenever it's eaten and goes by Albert, and its owners, a sailor called Bill Barnacle, and a penguin by the name of Sam Sonoff. Bunyip has just begun his journey when he encounters the three in the midst of lunch. Too polite to offer himself a slice, Bunyip hints at his hunger, asking questions about the pudding. Am I right in supposing that there are onions in this pudding? He asks. Before Bill can reply, a thick, angry voice comes out of the pudding, saying, Onions, bunions, corns, and crabs, whiskers, wheels, and handsome cabs, Beef in bottles, beer in bones, give him a feed and end his groans. Albert, Albert, says Bill to the puddin, where are your manners? Where's yours, says the puddin rudely, guzzling away there and never so much as offering the stranger a slice. There you are, says Bill. There's nothing this puddin enjoys more than offering slices of himself to strangers. Fitting, then, that the magic pudding is now in the public domain in Canada and free for all to use as they wish. The book, that is. But you could be forgiven for confusing the book with the pudding itself. Rather than chapters, it's arranged into slices, and as both a fictional foodstuff and a public domain text, the magic pudding is a never-depleted, common resource that all can enjoy without depriving others. Creative works enter the public domain when their copyright expires. In Canada, copyright for most works expires 50 years after the end of the year when the creator dies. That means that on January 1st, just as we entered the new year, works by creators who died in 1969 entered the public domain. Since Norman Lindsay died in 1969, his works are now copyright-free, including The Magic Pudding. Since public domain works have no more copyright, anyone is free to copy them, create derivative works, and even republish them for commercial or non-commercial ends. All this can be done without receiving permission, making any payments, or navigating the gray area that is fair dealing. 
If an adaptation of a work in the public domain is sufficiently original, it's even granted its own copyright protection. A work being in the public domain, though, doesn't necessarily mean that copies will be available for everyone to get their hands on. But since many libraries have public domain texts in their collections, it can be a natural extension of their mandate as resource providers to digitize them and liberate copies for free public use. Coupled with the work of purpose-driven nonprofits like Project Gutenberg and its Canadian counterpart, Project Gutenberg Canada, these initiatives have led to the availability of a vast store of freely available public domain texts and artworks on the internet. This all sounds too good to be true, and in a sense, it is. Though the creator's life plus 50 years is a useful rule of thumb for copyright status in Canada, it doesn't capture nearly the whole picture. Different types of works have different rules, established and revised over time in different pieces of legislation. See the University of Alberta's Canadian copyright term and public domain flowchart for a picture of this complexity and a guide to it. Copyright laws also vary by jurisdiction. Canada's life plus 50 years copyright term is short by international standards and the minimum allowed by international copyright treaties. Compare it with the life plus 70 years term standard in the US and Europe. This regional disparity in copyright laws means, for instance, that anyone with an unfiltered internet connection can access the website for Project Gutenberg Canada, but only those living in Canada or another jurisdiction where the copyright of the text on the site has also expired can legally download copies of them. All of that complexity aside, in Canada, for texts and artworks with single creators, we can apply the life plus 50 year rule with relative confidence. So if you're listening from Canada, here are a few of the other creators who died in 1969, whose works have now entered our commons. Amy Ashwood Garvey, co-founder of the revolutionary pan-African organization, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Her journalism from the association's newspaper, Negro World, fields a sustained and powerful call for black liberation from white supremacist oppression. Theodore Adorno, cultural critic and neo-Marxist theorist. His essays on the culture industry plot the systematic decline of the cultural realm under the logic of industrial capitalism. As Thomas Mann described in reference to Adorno's 1949 Minima Moralia, his work has the density, sheer brilliance, and gravitational pull of a star brought down to Earth. Jack Kerouac, his freeform, traveling prose, bohemian lifestyle, and fear of commitment, all detailed and on the road, have inspired several generations of dissolute young men and evoke the placelessness that haunts Americanized life. Sigrid Undestet, known primarily as the writer of high realism set in medieval Norway. The immense scope and vivid realization of her works, like her three-volume, Kristen Lavren's Daughter, earned her the 1928 Nobel Prize for Literature. Otto Dix, German painter and printmaker, whose blunt, desacralizing depictions of the horrors of the First World War historically ground the rupture of the European avant-garde and anticipate his later contributions to the development of German Expressionism. Sarojini Naidu, Indian poet and revolutionary anti-colonial activist. She was punished by the British colonial state for her participation in acts of nonviolent resistance and went on to be the first woman to govern a state in independent India. Her direct and evocative poetry signaled her rejection of stylistic colonization from European modernism. This is just a vanishingly small sample of the creators whose works have entered the Canadian public domain this year, enriching our common cultural and intellectual wealth.
the existence of the public domain is a delayed recognition and a celebration of the too often overlooked collective aspect of creative work. But this collective cultural wealth is freed at the expense of the individual monetary wealth of those who continue to hold and profit from the expiring copyright of these works, long after the creators have died, along with any plausible claim of encouraging their creation and innovation through copyright retention. In Canada, representatives from industries that profit from copyright have continually lobbied for an extension to the existing term, and it appears that they will soon get their way. The U.S.-Mexico and Canada trade agreement, which is set to replace NAFTA, contains a clause that requires Canada's copyright term to be extended to a minimum of the life of the author plus 70 years. Canada has already signed the agreement, and if it's ratified, will have two and a half years from the date that it enters into force to introduce new copyright legislation in compliance. If the change applies retroactively, works previously in the public domain may come back under copyright. In any case, the agreement will cause the public domain to stagnate over the next two decades. And given the United States' history of capitulating to industry pressure to extend copyright terms, equating our standards with theirs feels like a dangerous precedent to set. Returning now to Norman Lindsay's The Magic Pudding, I'll close on Sam Sonoff and Bill Barnacle's apt diagnosis of the situation when they're accosted by a pair of thieves who claim that the limitless pudding is their own rightful property and plan to have it all to themselves. As members of the collective Noble Society of Pudding Owners, Sam and Bill are called to protect the pudding's place in the commons. They're after a puddin', explained Sam, because they're professional puddin' thieves. And as we're professional puddin' owners, said Bill, we have to fight them on principle. The fighting, he added, is a mere flea bite, as the saying goes. The trouble is, what's to be done with the puddin'? stuff there from Timothy Arthur. I have many new ideas for adaptations. Totally. Let's modify some stuff. Public domain, baby. <laughs> Woo! Next is a segment by Joel Vleckinger on shadow libraries, scholarly piracy, and the direction of libraries going forward. Here is Joel. Heading into the 2020s, one phenomenon that I think library and information professionals, particularly those working in the post-secondary education sector, could still do more to understand is scholarly piracy, as represented by so-called shadow libraries. In the simplest terms, shadow libraries, sometimes called pirate libraries, consist of texts, in this case scholarly texts, aggregated outside the legal framework of copyright. The most high-profile shadow library to date has been Sci-Hub, an illicit database of some 60 million academic papers that serves half a million daily downloads launched in 2011 by Russian neuroscience student Alexandra Elbakian. According to a widely shared research paper published in eLife in 2018 by Himmelstein et al., as of March 2017, quote, Sci-Hub's database contained 68.9% of the 81.6 million scholarly articles registered with Crossref and 85.1% 
of the 54.5 million articles published in toll access journals, end quote. This led the authors to conclude, quote, for the first time, nearly all scholarly literature is available gratis to anyone with an internet connection, suggesting the toll access business model may become unsustainable, end quote. In my library school experience thus far, we've spent a bit of time learning about the serials crisis in academic publishing, whereby the monopolistic control of for-profit scholarly journals by a handful of publishers such as Elsevier has resulted in rapidly rising subscription prices that have outpaced inflation rates and severely eroded libraries, universities, and scholars' abilities to purchase the publications necessary for research and education. In response to the serials crisis, many libraries have opted to cancel big deal journal bundles offered by publishers in order to pursue open access publishing models on an institutional scale. The University of California, for example, made headlines in early 2019 when it decided against renewing all of its subscriptions with Elsevier, arguing that, quote, the publisher was unwilling to meet UC's contract terms, which would integrate subscription charges and open access publishing fees making OA the default for any article by a UC scholar and stabilizing journal costs for the university, end quote. Spark, the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition, actually maintains a list of canceled big deals with publishers on its website. All of this said, however, in the serials crisis discussions that we had in SLIS, I noticed that we never touched on the role played by shadow libraries in the overall scholarly communications and publishing ecosystem, focusing instead on publishers versus institutions as the main players in this story. To some extent, this oversimplification makes sense, as it's us as students that are training to eventually be able to assertively broker deals with publishers on behalf of libraries for which we hope to work. I would argue that what we do when we exclude shadow libraries, such as Sci-Hub, from this conversation is we effectively invisibilize our students or users, pretending that any information-seeking method or behavior that falls outside of licit channels doesn't exist. Now, there may be powerful legal reason for us to do this in our public or student-facing communications. We may not want to be seen to be promoting contravention of copyright law. We may not want to boost services that the library has no control over at the expense of ones we do. But conceptually, amongst ourselves, we need to acknowledge the illicit, the piratical, and the shadow as a reality. In my experience, librarians are, to make a broad, perhaps borderline offensive generalization, highly rules-philic individuals. That is, we love rules. We've turned pedantry into a profession. We love to parse nuance, to carefully apply the multi-stage, highly technical procedure. Let's be honest, we love to hash out a good old-fashioned license. What the global context of shadow libraries illustrates for us, however, is that there's a kind of inbuilt privilege to being able to be rules-philic in the comparatively well-resourced post-secondary institutions of the global north. Joseph Karaganis, in the introduction to his edited volume Shadow Libraries and Balaj Bodo, across a series of articles, have written the most compelling accounts of Shadow Libraries' development, situating them in their necessary global socioeconomic context. In Shadow Libraries' introduction, Karaganis recounts a series of significant historical changes in the academic, higher learning, and publishing ecosystems over the last 30 years. Roughly summarized, these changes encompass an extremely broad set of global developments. Post-secondary education expands in middle and low-income countries, concurrent with the state's continual retrenchment of post-secondary educational funding 
as a global trend. This leads to the proliferation of private educational institutions in middle and low-income countries where students themselves increasingly shoulder the financial burden of their education. Over the same period, academic libraries have to cope with rising inflation in the cost of educational resources, specifically electronic journals, the serials crisis, and this impacts resource budgeting allocations. Contemporaneous with these developments, there are also rapid advances in cheap copying technologies from photocopiers through to the internet and digital networked media. Finally, later in the period, we see the relatively slow, uneven adoption of open publishing initiatives, which in turn leads to the more radical guerrilla open access efforts of figures such as Aaron Swartz and Alexandra Albakian, aforementioned creator of SciHub. Similarly, Bodo in Pirates in the Library, an inquiry into the guerrilla open access movement, places the guerrilla OA movement within the context of what he terms the, quote, commercialization of Western scholarly publishing, end quote, over the course of the second half of the 20th century, and the, quote, massification and globalization of science, end quote, over roughly the same period. The commercialization of Western scholarly publishing entailed, quote, a number of developments that led to the dramatic increase of commercial influence in the subscription-based scholarly publishing market, transforming a rather unprofitable, decentralized marketplace into a highly profitable, highly concentrated global enterprise, mostly run by commercial publishers." End quote. These developments include the boom in Western higher education and research after World War II, leading to an expansion of the size of the scholarly publishing market, the creation of the Institute for Scientific Information and the Science Citation Indices, which identified core journals in each discipline, leading to an increase in their value for publishers, digitization, which reduced journal publishing overhead costs while not driving prices down. A sequence of mergers and acquisitions that resulted in vertically integrated oligopolies in scholarly publishing. Libraries' inability to effectively resist inflationary price hikes and scientists' passivity in the face of increasing commercialization. Bodo describes the massification and globalization of science as the dramatic increase of enrollment in tertiary education worldwide over the latter half of the 20th century, creating significant demand for learning resources. Quote, in the West, the established infrastructure of scholarly communications were there to supply this demand. For the developing world, this growing demand was met with severely inadequate supply. End quote. While this initially resulted in the proliferation of localized photocopy-based piratical cottage industries around developing world campuses, these industries were rendered largely inadequate by rapidly growing internet penetration over the course of the 1990s, along with the increasing globalization of scholarly research ecosystems. Quote, the mechanisms to provide access to the scholarly canon of globalized academe were missing. The sudden surge in demand could not find its legal supply. The English language scholarly canon was paywalled. OA was not yet ready and was not a good enough substitute. The local print-based cottage industries were rapidly becoming obsolete in terms of the quality and quantity of materials they were able to carry. The new generation of students and researchers who were born into these conditions had to realize that they face insurmountable competitive disadvantages if they try to stick to the rules, end quote. Both of these accounts helpfully historicize shadow libraries tracing their lineage back to previous practices of informal text sharing and sketching this, quote, against the backdrop of the complicated globalization of higher education, 
and the digitization of knowledge, end quote from Karaganis. My hope for librarianship heading into the 2020s is for us to allow the piratical and the shadow more into our own thinking, and consequently, for us to pay greater attention to these backdrops. Thanks. This has been Joel for Shout for Libraries. Thanks to Joel Bleckinger for that segment on scholarly piracy and the future of librarianship. And on that note, we will conclude this month's episode of Shout for Libraries. Be sure to check out past episodes of Shout for Libraries on SoundCloud or as podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And visit our Facebook page or Instagram at Shout for Libraries or connect with us on Twitter at Shout the number four libraries. This has been Belinda Ongaro, Dan Hackborn, and Julia Guy. Thanks for listening to another episode of Shout for Libraries, and don't forget to check it out.